Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Today, I'm going to talk to an emerging portfolio manager with a unique methodology. Perth Toll is the founder of the Life and Liberty Indexes and portfolio manager for the emerging market ETF with the ticker symbol FRDM. Perth was born in Beijing and moved to the United States at age nine. After college, she lived in Hong Kong for a year and has significant experience in China. As opposed to the blunt market cap approach to getting emerging markets exposure, Perth has built an index that sought leading indicators in countries that valued freedom and non-autocratic features. Perth scores every country in the emerging market space across 79 categories. Of the 26 emerging market countries, 11 make it onto Toll's index, including Taiwan, South Korea, and Poland. Her exclusion of China and Russia have been huge calls. We talk about her process and how she thinks about countries like Taiwan that score well but have invasion risk from less friendly neighbors. Finally, we talk about the business of setting up a fund and competing with the big boys. Here's a bit of a disclaimer. This is not investment advice, and I am not endorsing the fund. This is an interview with a portfolio manager with a new way of thinking. Welcome aboard, Perth. Thanks for having me. Well, I thank you for coming on. I've been meaning to have you on the podcast for many, many months, and you are extremely popular. And I was waiting for a lull to come about, and we got the exact opposite of that with Russia-Ukraine. And so we actually have a lot to talk about, which is a lot of fun. Yeah. So just set the stage for us as far as the emerging markets world that your fund plays in and what that looks like for the investment community. Yeah. So the emerging markets universe, and we'll just back up and, you know, we know there's there's three classifications for, you know, international stocks. So there's developed market, emerging market, and frontier market. So emerging markets are markets that historically we've known as, for example, the BRICS, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, and so forth. These are the types of countries that are typically either a lot of them are still autocracies or they're coming out of autocracies. So it's a universe that is rife with that autocracy risk. And it just so happens that the largest of these, China, and you know, as well as some other others like Russia and Saudi Arabia, if you market capitalization weight, which is what most funds do in the space, you get like 40% to autocracies, some of the world's worst autocracies. So what we do is we try to solve that autocracy heavy emerging markets problem by instead of market capitalization weighting, we freedom weight on the country level. So that gives us a much freer country set. So tell us a little bit about the freedom weights. What are the metrics that you're looking at as you sort of get away from market cap? You're looking for other points of data that are important in the running of a country, human rights, things like that. Yeah. So we use a third-party independent quantitative freedom metrics from the Cato Institute and the Fraser Institute. And those guys combine 79 different variables on personal and economic freedoms. So personal freedoms include things like terrorism, trafficking, torture, women's rights, things like freedom of speech, freedom of media, freedom of assembly, and civil procedure and criminal procedure, procedure and so forth. The strength of institutions, how the elections are done, and the plurality of political parties, and judicial independence. And then there's also the economic freedom variables, things like taxation, you know, rule of law, private property rights, and shareholder rights, 
sound as a monetary policy, freedom to trade internationally, and business regulations. So all of these 79 variables added together gives the, each country a composite freedom score. And we use that composite score to derive our country weights and allocations. So as a, as a natural result of the freedom weighting process, the worst autocracies like China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and so forth are naturally excluded out of the index. So what happens if a country is, let's say, 75% not very good and 25% good? Does that reflect directly in the weighting? Or is there a cutoff point where you say, no, that's not good enough. Yes, they're okay to be included. Yeah, so we don't have a cutoff point or a line in the sand. We just look at your freedom level compared to your peers. So it's a relative weighting mechanism where as long as you're freer than most of your peers, then you typically will end up in the index. So the countries that are kind of borderline are like India, Brazil, Malaysia, Colombia. Those countries are sometimes in, sometimes out. And it's, it's, all, it's all relative to your peers. So there's no line in the sand. It's just we take the freest emerging markets relative to the other, other countries in this space. So you've decided on the countries that you want to allocate to. How does that get implemented? Are you going into a country-specific ETF or are you investing in companies specifically? Yeah, we're actually investing in the companies specifically. And, and we do actually invest in local shares for the most part in those exchanges. So, you know, we pay to have that access to the local exchanges for our investors of the ETF. So, you know, for example, if a company has both a local share and an ADR, we will take whatever is most liquid. And if the company already exists in the fund and we're doing a rebalance, then we will take whatever is already in the fund. So we don't cause any unnecessary turnover. So the fund is currently about 80% local shares and about 20% ADRs. So there's quite a bit of local share exposure there. So as far as currency risk, how do you think about that? Do you try to hedge out of that? Or are you willing to roll the dice on the theory that the currency should be supported by a freer structure? Yeah, so that's exactly right, the latter. So the freer countries tend to have more sound money. And so there's typically less currency risk with these types of countries. So it's such a novel concept to me. It's such a different set of criteria used to sort of think about the geopolitics and some of the other situations that are around the world. What is the landscape of a typical ETF in the emerging markets or a typical manager? How do you differ from them? Yeah. So a typical emerging markets manager, whether it's you know passive or whether it's active, typically will benchmark to something like the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. And I would say actually 99% probably do. So that index has currently about 32% in China. It no longer has much to Russia after the Russian stocks became completely uninvestable. And it'll typically have about 3% to Saudi Arabia. Now that Russia is not in there, China and Saudi Arabia's weight, as well as the other countries, will increase. So typically with a emerging markets fund that either tracks or benchmarks the MSCI Emerging Markets Index or even the FTSE, you will have a lot of concentration to some of these countries that are have very poor human rights records and very poor kind of institutions, rule of law, and investor protections. And I think we're seeing that now with China especially. I believe it's Jake that, that tweeted last night how the MCHI index, which is both onshore and offshore shares, which is a good measure of the China market, since its inception in 1992, 
is approaching a 0% nominal annual return. So it's basically returned almost nothing since 1992. And if you think about it, during that time, China experienced tremendous growth. And that growth came from an increase in freedom levels from the time of Mao, right? So they had Cultural Revolution, the Great Leap Forward, where literally tens of millions of people died in famine because the policies were so poor. They improved from that abysmal policy landscape to what they had in the last 30 or 40 years, which is a huge, drastic improvement over that famine period. So that created this huge economic growth in the country. And the GDP, you know, whether we believe their numbers or not, let's say it's somewhat correct, has been growing, you know, significantly over the last 40 years. And then last year, or I should say over the past several years, they have reversed those policies that made them prosperous. But still looking at that time period, and that's the time period of the NCHI index, right, since 1992 to now, we've not captured any of that growth as foreign investors. And that's one of the dangers of investing in these autocratic markets that don't have rule of law and investor protections. You don't know what you're investing in. You don't know who actually owns those companies. And you're not first in line to, to capture those returns. So even if a company that is unfree experiences extreme growth, foreign investors aren't necessarily going to be the ones to benefit from it. Yeah, you were saying you you know you may not be top of line. There may not be a line at all, and uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you may be an interested bystander and holding a ticket to a sports event rather than an actual investment. Yeah, I think Jack Ma said before he disappeared, there is no systemic risk in China finance because there is no system in <laughs> no financial <laughs> system. In so, and then he disappeared. So, so yeah. I, yeah, absolutely right. So adjacencies to autocratic nations, I imagine China and Russia not being within your investment framework because of their records has been a nice boost to results. Whereas a country like Taiwan, I think scores very well in terms of its freedom component. What happens if you're right about Taiwan, but a neighbor like China does something that creates significant problems for that neighboring country? How do you think about that? How do you mitigate that risk? Yeah, so we have about 19% in Taiwan, and it's one of the freest emerging markets, typically been the freest. Right now, it's it's the second largest holding, with Chile being the first. And so Chile, Taiwan, South Korea, and Poland are typically always in the top four. We have 19%, and the EEM, which is based on MSCI, has 16% in Taiwan. So that's not a huge difference in the two, what the Taiwan hold weights. Now, as far as invasion risk, the risk lies with the autocracy. So the risk there is the bigger risk is China, not Taiwan. If we see what happened with Russia and Ukraine, Russia is Ukraine is a too small of a market for us to see what would have happened to that market. But Russia is the market that suffered the most, I would say. And looking at that as an investor, I would be concerned about having 30 plus percent in China in my emerging markets allocation. Much more concerned than having 19% or 16% in Taiwan, depending on the index. So our, you know, Taiwan exposure is very similar to the, you know, market cap weighted index. So you'll have that either way. And the market cap weighted indexes will have 30 plus percent in China and we'll have zero to China. So that's how we manage that risk. And that kind of happens naturally 
as a result of the freedom waiting. Yeah, and it's just a different way of thinking about it. That That's interesting. How many countries are represented in your fund currently out of the universe? Yeah, so currently it's actually 11 countries. And this is the first year we've had 11 countries. So the number of countries are not capped, and it just depends on what the output of the algorithm is after the inputs of the scores are put in. So in the past, we've typically had 10 countries, and we have 10 holdings per country. So that's why it's called the Freedom 100, but we don't cap the countries. So right now there's 110 holdings and 11 countries in the index. How fast do your trades move? So obviously Russia and Ukraine created a very volatile situation, very quickly moving. And hopefully, you know, sort of the autocracy scores sort of in a sense predicted that a little bit. But let's say you were working on emerging markets in the rest of Europe and things start moving at a different pace. Is there a lag in terms of the information you get from that feeds the algorithm in terms of to when you'd be able to put trades in? Yes. So freedom is typically a leading indicator, right? So all of these things with China and Russia, our metrics have prevented us from being exposed to. So you can see that that it does work as a leading indicator. Now we do have a mechanism in the rule book that's called the, it's, it's a rule called the freedom decline momentum rule, which says that if the freedom score in a particular country declines too quickly, that it will be kicked out of the index, even if it's currently in there. So the only country that's ever triggered that rule was Turkey. And that was in 2018's rebalance. So the fund has been around since 2019. The index has been around since 2017. So in the 2018 rebalance of the index, Turkey got kicked out of the you know, constituents because they had a more than 5% drop in a, in a scale that we use in that year. So if it declines too quickly, we do have that rule that will catch the very fast declines. Because what we found is that Freedom increases happen gradually and freedom declines happen much faster. So we want to catch that on the way down and not, it's like a stop loss and not be exposed to the aftermath of that. Right. So before we talk about the business of running a fund, how does the U.S. score on these metrics? Obviously the U.S., I'm biased. I think it's the greatest country in the world, but I'm also not blind to the fact that there are lots of different problems. Does it score well compared to our neighbors and and other emerging markets? It's about on par with Taiwan. <laughs> so I, I believe Taiwan is actually a little higher, but I have to look it up to be sure. I don't know what it is this year, but it's typically been around 11 or 12 out of 162 in the world. It has seen declines due to the, you know, certain things in recent years, like war on terror, war on drugs, things like that. And I think, you know, depending on certain countries that in the developed world, their responses to COVID and, you know, we see China with their zero COVID policy and these lockdowns that are severely impacting life on the ground in China. So what we experience in developed world is nothing compared to that, but it did come very close at certain times, right? So that impacts scores on things like freedom of assembly or, you know, other type of variables. So we'll see how that affects the scores in some of these developed markets, but that is a, I would say, a transient effect. And hopefully everybody's in the developed world back to somewhat back to normalcy now. Cool. So you're coming up on three years of being a fund and having performance and so on. Take us through some of the highs of that process. Obviously, opening up and starting the fund, that's got to be both a mix of abject fear, like jumping out of an airplane, but total adrenaline as well. Talk a little bit about getting going and starting up and, and some of the real great surprises you've had. 
Yeah. So, I mean, starting off was definitely scary, but it was definitely something that I wanted to do regardless of the outcome. So I felt like a fund like this needed to exist. There's nothing like this out there and still isn't. So it really felt like something I had to do, whether or not it was going to be successful. So I was prepared to fail. I think most people that go into ETFs are prepared for that scenario, just because ETFs are so, I guess, operations cost heavy and low margin. <laughs> so nobody's going into this thinking they're going to be iShares, right? So yeah, it's very difficult also for independent issuers to be able to get off the ground. So I felt extremely fortunate that this, you know, we were able to bring this to market and that the market responded to it in a way that, you know, they appreciated the product. And the best part of this is getting feedback from clients and advisors saying, the relief and joy of our clients when they hear how we allocated for them in the emerging markets after all this happened. That's the best and it makes it all worth it. So absolutely, you know what I, people are saying, wow, this is, your performance is, you know, astounding and our relative performance and it must be like living the dream. And I'm like, it was like living the dream the whole time. So even when we were small, even when our performance was just, you know, in line with benchmarks, and there are times we underperformed, like when China outperformed after COVID, you know, even in those times, we've never had outflows. Well, we've had outflows, but not redemptions. So we haven't had, we never had a redemption versus a create in, in the ETF world. So that means 50,000 share block of shares that we have to kind of, you know, repackage. We never had that. So even during COVID. So, you know, I'm very fortunate that I think the people that are investors that choose to invest in us invest for two reasons. One, they want to align their emerging markets investments with their values. And two, they believe that freer markets will outperform. And that thesis has been proven in this short period of time, which I didn't expect at all. I thought it would take literally decades for that freedom premium to show, but we've had some extreme events. So I'm very grateful to be able to get to do this and the response from our investors and from our advisors that use the product is probably my favorite part of it. Well, it's one of those things, may you live in interesting times that we certainly got that. And that sounds like it's been a nice stroke of luck for you to be able to launch and, and prove the concept and, and to be able to, as you say, demonstrate the outperformance based on your thinking and then and then have that align well with other people's values as well. This slots in, in my mind, very neatly in sort of ESG thinking from any sort of capital allocation perspective. Has that been your experience? I'm sure that's something, some of the feedback you've gotten from chief investment officers and other allocators. Yeah. You know, most of our investors, like I said, they use this either one for the ESG aspect to align with their values or two for the outperformance. So we get both. We get both the ESG type and the non-ESG type of investor. And, you know, I think in the future, it'll just be all one type. I think people just invest according to their values and according to what they think will get them the best return. And it'll just all be integrated together. Now, we don't advertise ourselves as ESG. We don't call it ESG. And that, the reason for that is because two reasons. One, we don't use security level ESG metrics. So once we found that once you have the G on the country level, the E and the S on the security level will typically follow. So we don't use any you know, additional ESG screening on the security level. But if you look at our kind of rankings on MSCI, they give us an A on ESG on the security level. So, so that's, that's something that kind of takes care of itself with this type of strategy. And the other reason we, we haven't called ourselves ESG is because I didn't want to be lumped in with 
the other emerging markets ESG products that are very obviously, let's just call it greenwashing to be nice. They have 40% in these autocracies, just like the non-ESG parent index, because by you know, rule book, they have to, you know, stick with the country allocations in the parent index. They can't deviate more than 1% from the parent non-ESG index. So that's according to their own policy guidelines. So we don't really want to be associated with these type of strategies that are just kind of ESG by name only. So that's why we don't we don't call ourselves that. But I think most investors who are investing with us do realize the ESG aspect of it. And that is one of the reasons that they invest. It's a super cool story. And the logic behind using what I think are pretty measurable, somewhat obvious metrics to sort of score freedom. I think the theory behind what you're doing makes a ton of sense. Have there been any weird surprises where the algorithm is lined up well and things haven't performed as you thought, or there was a misstep somehow, or maybe a disconnect between the security you selected in the country? I can't think of a scenario like that currently. Now, we do also exclude state-owned enterprises. So It has always been surprising to me how many state-owned banks are in the top 10 holdings in Poland. So we do exclude those. Also, it surprised me how much technology makes a big part of the fund. But it's the technology that is more like the semiconductor companies. So we have a lot of semiconductors. We have Samsung. We have Taiwan Semiconductor. We have MediaTek, which is a smaller semiconductor company in Taiwan. And We just have a lot of exposure to the semiconductor area. And I think that's helped us in recent past also, just because, you know, chips are becoming such an important part of the global supply chain and they're in such shortage. And Taiwan and South Korea are the leaders, world leaders in this technology. You know, China has their companies, but they're about five years behind in the chip technology. So I think that the freer markets do tend to respond to whatever the the demand is globally. So even if the demand is in a more unfree market, the freer markets typically can capture that and respond to it and benefit from it. So for example, when China had their huge push into electric vehicles and there were all these government subsidies for electric vehicle companies, Chile, a company in Chile called SQM, pivoted from mining mostly copper to mining mostly lithium to provide lithium for the batteries. So even though, you know, the demand was happening in China, Chile, a very free market and included in the index, was able to capture and benefit from that. So there's a lot of kind of cross trading that goes on between these countries. So there is still, you know, benefits from that trade, even though we're not exposed to that autocracy risk of a company literally being in China and subject to the Chinese state and being required to put the state's interests before those of shareholders. So yeah, I think that part has surprised me how, you know, there is still trade with these unfree markets, but that trade goes to benefit the freer countries and without that direct autocracy risk. Interesting. This is a terrific story and something that I'm going to be following and my listeners will be following as well. How do we stay in touch with you? How do we find the fund? What's the best way to contact you if there's interest? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn, and the best way to contact me is through the contact page on our website. So there's a fund site and an index site, and they can just you can just toggle between the two. The index site is lifeandlibertyindexes.com. The fund site is freedometfs.com. Terrific. I will have that in the show notes. Perth, thank you for being on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You bet. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.